Well, good morning. So, do you trust me? That's a question that has got to be answered contextually. You know, it's one thing to trust someone about a, a new flavor of ice cream. It's an entirely different thing to trust them to perform open heart surgery on you. You know, it's one thing to trust someone enough to let them drive your car. It's another thing to let them marry your daughter. It's one thing to trust someone in a situation where you are still in control and can escape if you need to. It's something else entirely to trust someone in a situation where you will find yourself utterly defenseless. Real trust. Real trust. It insinuates a willingness to experience a good deal of vulnerability. It assumes a willingness to expose yourself to the possibility of hurt, loss, or pain. Absolute trust. Absolute trust means the complete absence of any sort of exclusions, qualifications, or escape clauses. And guess what? God wants us to trust him absolutely. Without reserve, without exclusions. The Lord wants us to obey him diligently and to serve him faithfully and to submit to him unreservedly. <laughs> and we struggle with that, don't we? Man, do we struggle with that. It, we, we become exceptionally hesitant uh, when it comes to trusting God without any sort of limitation. And now it's easy to obey the Lord when we happen to agree with what it is that he's told us to do. It's easy to believe the Lord when we can see his provision right there in front of our eyes. It's even easy to surrender to him when we really don't have any other options. But the other 98% of the time, we really struggle with this. We struggle to wholly and unreservedly trust the Lord. And so did ancient Israel. This is nothing new. And that's what we see in our passage this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 8. That's where we pick up this morning. We finished out chapter 7 last week, so let's dive into chapter 8. Will you do this? Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and stand. I'll read our passage. I'm going to read the chapter, and you can follow along. 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned towards dishonest profit, took bribes, and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, 
appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They've not rejected you, but they have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they've done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to his use in his chariots, on his horses or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to plow his ground and to reap his harvest or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants and your female servants, your best cattle and your donkeys, and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord won't answer you on that day. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us. Go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the people's words. And then he repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. Then Samuel told the men of Israel, each of you go back to your city. Let's pray. Father, as I read this, I just, I grieve for the people of Israel and the decision that we see them make here. Yeah, God, I know. Yeah. Times I've done that too. I pray, Lord, that as we read about this, that we would understand what it is that they've done. And God, that you would use this time to open our eyes to ways that we have done the same. God, that you would free us from that that you would respond to our cry. And Lord, that, that you would work within our hearts and our minds and you would give us a willingness, a determined decision to enthrone you and you alone within our hearts. God, I pray that you would work that in this time. And we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated.
I'm pretty sure of this. <laughs> Every last one of us has had the experience of saying something and then regretting it. I assume you're pretty much like me, that there are times that you are pained by the memory of stupid things that you've said, even things that you said long ago. I think this, if time travel were real, I think mostly it would be used by people to jump backwards in time and tell their younger self, stop, shut up, don't say that. And just don't say anything right now, just be quiet. If time travel were real, I think Israel would have taken advantage of it to take back this whole chapter, uh, to rescind the request that they make here of God and to choose instead to trust him. You know, if you don't catch anything else this morning, catch this. Trusting God is far, far better than getting whatever it is that you think you want. Trusting God is far better than getting what you want, period. Full stop. No exceptions or exclusions. Now let's get started. Where we pick up here at the beginning of chapter 8, many years have passed since chapter 7. Uh, really, the whole bulk of Samuel's career as, as judge over Israel, it, it's there in the blank space between these two chapters. I mean, the end of chapter 7 tells us that Samuel grew up to judge Israel. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, we hop to the end of his story. And we see Samuel as an old man. He's towards the end of his career. Look there at verse 1. Samuel grew old. And he appointed his sons as judges in his place. His firstborn, Joel. His second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. And Beersheba being down at the southern tip of the nation of Israel. But Samuel's sons, unlike Samuel, they didn't walk in his ways. They weren't righteous men. But rather they turned toward dishonest prophet. They took bribes and they perverted justice. It's ironic, isn't it? Just like Eli before him, whose sons were wicked, so too Samuel's sons in the end are wicked men. They too fall prey to that worst temptation for those who are in authority. They fall into self-centeredness. Instead of fearing God, and therefore serving God's people, they become men who serve themselves and they do it to the hurt of God's people. No one wants leaders like that. So in verse 4, we read that uh, the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, look, you're old. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, did they think they were buttering him up with this? <laughs> It's like, listen, you old geezer, your sons are a wreck. They don't walk in your ways. Therefore, we would like a different plan. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as the other nations have. Now, it, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That 
they wanted to get rid of Samuel's sons. It sounds like they were awful. But their solution, their solution of, of having a king just like the Gentile nations around them, that's going from the frying pan into the fire. Their solution to this problem is only going to make things worse. Bad judges are a bad problem, but a bad king is a far worse problem. You know what they should have done is they should have gone to God, their true king and ruler, and asked God to remove these boys, to remove Samuel's sons. Uh, but instead, they leaps all the way over to removing God as king and putting a man in his place as someone that they can see, someone that they can make demands of, and placing him upon a royal throne. Instead of turning to the only one who is truly in authority, they seek to make a man the highest authority within their land. They're not trusting God. They're not trusting God's plan for them. But they are doing what we so often do. They are seeking to institute their own plan, to do it their way, to put in place a system that they feel like they can control and manipulate <coughs> to get to the ends that they desire. They want to be like the rest of the world around them. They want to blend in. We can relate to that, can't we? But you got to understand this. God does not want his people to blend in. He wants his people to stand out. God's plan for his people is for us to be different from the world around us. I mean, clear back in Leviticus chapter 20, there in verse 26, the Lord says to his people, he says, listen, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be mine. You're to be holy to me. You're to be like me and you are to be different from the nations of the world this this word holy understand it, it means to be different to be set apart to be pure and untainted to be exclusively set aside for the lord it means to be uncommon in this world to be unusual to be different from this world in which we live those who are holy are going to look different. They're going to live different. They're going to think different. They are truly going to be different. It's not just an Old Testament thing. In 1 Peter 1.16, the Lord tells you and I, he tells the church that we are to be holy because he is holy. You and I, we are supposed to be as Peter puts it a little further on in that letter in 1 Peter 2.9. We're to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. We're to belong to him, and it's to show. 
Why does God want that? He wants that because his intent for us is that we would proclaim the praises of the one who has called us out of darkness, out of being just like the rest of the world and into his marvelous light. But much like us, the Israelites weren't interested in that. They were more interested in getting what they wanted than they were in doing what God wanted. And they were more invested in fitting in and blending in than they were in being an example, a signpost to this world. So instead of seeking to be God's peculiar people, and by the way, when we say that, we don't mean weird. We don't mean strange. You ever seen that far side cartoon, you know, nature's way of saying danger. And it's a person who's dressed all funny and just standing out from the crowd. It, it isn't that we are to be odd balls, but rather that we are to be different in how we live our lives to such an extreme that the world around us looks at us and thinks, now, isn't that odd? How do you explain this person? How do you explain how they live, how they respond? Because it isn't like anything else that we see within this world. We're to be those who, rather than trusting our own judgment, rather than leaning on our own understanding, we put our full and unrestricted trust in the Lord. That isn't where Israel was at. And so they asked for a king. Now, verse 6 says that when they said, give us a king to judge us, that Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. You know, as Samuel hears this request. He, he knows that there's something about what they're asking for that just isn't right. It wasn't just the rejection of his sons. It was more than that. So Samuel does what we should do in a situation like that. He goes to the Lord and he prays about it. That is, that is always a good call. And when something seems off to you, pray about it. Bring it to the Lord. Ask him. Be like the psalmist who in Psalm 43, 3 Asks the Lord to send your light and your truth and let them lead me. In the midst of the conundrums of life and the, the, the problems that you can't seem to untangle, the Gordian knights, knots that you face, ask the Lord to shed his light upon it. Ask him to open your eyes to the, to the truth of the matter. And like the psalmist here, Ask the Lord that in doing that, he would lead us to himself. I love this. I love this. He says, send your light and your truth and, and let them lead me where? To you. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to your dwelling place. God, help me to understand. And through this process, draw me closer to you. Be like the psalmist in Psalm 16, 7, who says, I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. Do you find yourself laying awake, 
trying to find a solution, laying there, wishing that you knew what to do. Turn to the Lord in that moment. Ask Him to counsel you. Look to the Lord for the solution to your problems. Ask Him to guide and to shape your thinking. Ask Him to show you what to do. Spend time in prayer over it. Look to the Word of God in regard to it. Seek godly counsel about it. Let me define that last one for a moment because we need to be cautious of those who are more than willing to share their opinions with us about what we should do. Understand this, godly counsel is not somebody's idea of what you should do with a praise the Lord tacked to it. No, 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 godly counsel is the application of God's word to a specific situation. What we need to do is to look to the Lord. We need to look to the Lord and then, as Proverbs 3, 5 says, we need to trust him with all our hearts. We need to look to the Lord and when he answers us, we need to trust him. Trust him completely. Don't rely upon your own understanding, but rather trust the Lord. Seek the Lord until he answers you. Wait until you hear from him. And then commit yourself to trust him. Well, here's what the Lord said to Samuel when Samuel brought this to the Lord. Verse 7. The Lord says, listen to the people and everything they say to you. Understand, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. They're doing the same thing to you that they, they've done to me since the very day I brought them out of Egypt. All from the beginning, the Lord says, until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. You know, there are at least two ways to reject God. One is to just simply reject him openly, to curse his name, to denounce his ways, to declare your rebellion, put it on a bumper sticker and slap it on the back of your car for the world to know. The other way is a bit more subtle. It can be to play a bit of a religious game. You can still say all the right things and do all the right things. You can be moral and respectable. But the key is this. You've got to live your life with your hand on the steering wheel. Oh, yes, you can be a follower of Jesus, but never to the point where you actually give up ultimate and final control of your life or your living. Certainly never put yourself in a situation where you have to depend upon God. That, too, is a rejection of God because it is a life lived, oh, maybe morally, but it is a life lived entirely without faith, without any sort of dependence upon God, without ever coming to a place where you truly are trusting God. Remember what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us? You know this verse. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God. Think about that for a moment. It is only by actually putting our faith in God, actually living a life based upon faith, not based upon his self-sufficiency, 
It's only a life built upon faith that can please God. It's only a life submitted in faith to God that will please him. Historically, Israel had often openly rejected God. They'd embraced idol worship. They'd turned away. But they'd also played the religious game quite often. Uh, they were good at doing all the right stuff, offering the sacrifices, doing the rituals, all without putting themselves in a place where by faith they were having to trust in the Lord to come through. You know, if you're standing at the top of a, uh, a rock wall and you're all roped up with a belay system, that's a roping system that, uh, that keeps you safe from falling to the bottom. You have a choice to make if you want to go to the bottom of this cliff. You can laboriously, slowly climb your way down the face of the wall, knowing that if you slip, that those ropes will probably catch you and keep you from being dashed to pieces at the bottom. Or you can lean back. You can lean back and put your full weight upon the ropes. You can rappel down, taking enormous leaps as you glide down the face of the cliff, putting your full trust in the rope to keep you safe and to deliver you to the bottom. Hear this. God has you on belay. He's got you roped up. He will keep you from falling. You can trust him. What the Lord wants is for us to live lives where we're leaning back and where we're putting our full weight of faith and dependence upon him and enjoying the ride. Put your faith in him and in him alone. Get rid of those earthly kings, especially the one that looks a lot like you. <laughs> the Lord tells Samuel, verse 9, listen to them. In other words, do what they ask. But solemnly warn them. It's actually a legal term. Give them full disclosure. Tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. And Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. It's kind of an unexpected answer, isn't it? I mean, we would kind of expect the prophet of God to come back from this request with a rebuke to the people for rejecting God as their king. Or maybe he would come back and he would plead with them tenderly, asking them not to be foolish and to put their faith, to put their trust in the Lord. Or maybe, maybe if it was a bad day, he would just simply pronounce God's judgment against them. Maybe that is what he's doing. When God says, give them what they're demanding. You know, one of the harshest ways that God sometimes disciplines us 
is when he gives us what we foolishly ask him for. Sometimes the absolute worst answer to a prayer is yes. Think about what Romans chapter 1 talks about. There in verse 26, Paul talks about those who have rebelled against God and they are, they are craving after evil things. And Paul says God gives them over to it. He says, for this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. God gave them over to the very things that they were craving, things that would destroy them. God's judgment on them was to give them everything that they lusted after. Israel was lusting desperately to be just like the other nations. They wanted a king. So God was going to give them one. But first, he told Samuel to give them full disclosure of what it would cost. This next section in the Hebrew, the word order is such that it puts an emphasis upon the things that are being taken away from them. In the English translations, the emphasis gets switched to the fact that these things are being taken. And so each sentence, each phrase begins with, he can take. Um, we read English, so we'll go with that. Notice all the things that the king will take. He will take your sons for chariots, for his horses, to appoint them as commanders, to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, to make his weapons. He, he'll take your daughters uh, to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He'll take your fields, your vineyards, your olive orchards, and give them to whoever he pleases. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He'll take your male servants, your female servants. He'll take your cattle and your donkeys. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. God says, you want a king? Just understand, it's not going to be the way you think it's going to be. I'll give you a king, but he won't serve you. You will serve him. And you won't like it. It won't be an improvement. And worst of all, look at verse 18. When that day comes and you cry out because of this king that you've chosen for yourselves, the Lord won't answer you on that day. In other words, God is going to make them live with their foolish choice. Ouch. Just like all the other nations, they want a king, and they want a king just like all the other nations. And so God is going to give them Saul. And Saul is going to do everything that God warns him about here. They had God as their king. And they demanded that he be replaced by a man. What the Lord wants more than anything 
is for each of us to be in that place of full submission to him as our God, our King, our Master. And yet, like the Israelites in ancient times, man, we fight that in a million ways. We want a king. Oh, we want somebody we can see, that we can understand, that we can predict what it is that he's going to do, that maybe even we can manipulate to get him to do what we want done. And so we tend to rotate through an ever-worsening cast of inadequates and tyrants. Uh, we crown true heroes, uh, giving them a role that they're honestly just not suited for. We enthrone men who use us and our loyalty to our own harm. Worst of all, we inaugurate ourselves as Lord of all and we worship our own false sovereignty. Some of us make experiences or feelings or being important the king over our life. Some of us crown excitement or adventure or a sense of belonging or of significance as monarch. Others bow before material wealth or pleasure or entertainment but everyone takes a king. The king in your life, it's a thing you live for. You wake up thinking about it. It's the thing that motivates you. It's, it's whatever it is that you've got to have in order to be content, to be happy in life, to be secure. But whatever it is, it's an unworthy king. There is only one king who isn't unworthy. And every king who is unworthy, rather than serving you, will turn you into those who serve him and will make you his slaves. Not you. You're not prone to that, you say? Hey, now you're contradicting that great theologian Bob Dylan. <laughs> Remember, he's the one who wrote, no matter who you are, that you're going to have to serve somebody. Maybe a more preeminent theologian, the Apostle Paul, puts it this way in Galatians 4.8. I definitely trust Paul's theology over Bob Dylan's. <laughs> Here's what Paul says in the past. Since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's will take anything and will make it the controlling factor over our lives. And when we do that, we become enslaved to those things. Romans 6, Paul puts it this way. He says, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, in ever, whatever it is that you give yourself to that becomes that controlling factor over your life, you become a slave to it. And really, in the end, there are only two directions that this can go. You are slaves of that one that you obey, either of sin leading to death because... Because since we belong to God, since we were made by him, we have been redeemed by him. 
giving any other that place of sovereignty in our life. That's sin. And when we put anything else, anyone else in that place of kingship in our lives, it is sin and it leads to death. But Paul says that's not your only option. Aren't you glad for that? That's a really good second part to a sentence. Or if death sounds unappetizing, if this is not the direction we want to go, we can give ourselves to obedience. And here in the context, it is obedience to God, submission to God, trusting God with the living of our lives. And that leads to righteousness. You don't have to be enslaved to something that will destroy you. Instead, you can choose to enslave yourself to the only one who will give you life in return. To the King of Kings, to our Jesus. He is the only one who is a giving king. He says this in Matthew 20, 28. He says of himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Dear friends, let me urge you, crown as sovereign king over your life. And not just theologically, but practically, actually, in the reality of the living of your life, crown as sovereign king over your life, the one who will give you life. Give yourself to Jesus. Surrender yourself utterly to him. Don't choose to learn the hard way. Don't take the more costly road of rebellion, whether it be outright or subtle. Don't take the path that the Israelites take. Look at their foolishness in verse 19. After all that Samuel has said, they decide that they know better. The people refused to listen to Samuel. Oh, they heard his words. They just refused to give them validity. What they refused was to put them into action. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. It'll be great, they say. Our king will judge us and he'll go out before us and he'll fight our battles. Oh, how wrong they were. How wrong we often are. Yeah, I get it. It's hard to trust God. I mean, we can't see Him. We can't subdue or restrain Him. We can't predict what He's going to do. There aren't any formulas that actually work for manipulating him. You can't dissuade him from his will. God has never said to me, now that's a very good point. I'm never going to convince him that he ought to do my will instead of his. He is God Almighty. You can't control him. But what you can do is utterly and fully surrender to him. And he will carry you. 
Submit your life. Submit your living to him. Crown him as your king. Let's stand and let's pray. God, we have have heard your word. We've sought to understand it. What we really need, Lord, is for you to preach your word to our hearts. For you to show us those ways, those places, that we have given something or someone else an illegitimate kingship over our lives. We have allowed other things to become the controlling factors, the driving force. We've given them your place. And I pray that you'd show us and that you would give us the strength, the desire, the ability to repent, to turn away completely. Lord, that you'd free us, that you'd give us joy in trusting you in leaning back fully in faith, living as you direct, not looking to any other but to you. God, pray for, I pray for those who, who maybe have never come to that place of surrender to you before. They have never e- even contemplated turning over their life to you. God, I pray that this morning that they'd speak with you, that they would surrender, that they would find not only that you are a good king, but you are a forgiving king and cleansing, that they would have new life, freedom from guilt and shame. Lord, that those of us who have walked with you for a while that we would experience freedom as well we would not be weighted down by little dictators in our lives that want to cripple and slow us Lord in faith we could live in obedience to you and to your word. And work that in us that it would be more than just a Sunday morning thought. It would be a Monday reality. Work that in us, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.